If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're back in the studio. It's a weird time-shifty time for us because we're at Dev Intersection right now. Yeah, I'm sure we're having a great time. I'm sure we are. We recorded this <laughs> last week, but it's next week now. And now you and I are probably in a bar in Las Vegas. You're showing me some scotch I've never had before and telling me a story I've never heard before. That's probably what's yeah, going on. I, I am prone to such things. Folks like bringing me, we go to the good whiskey bar and you say, what's your favorite whiskey? Let me give you something else. Right. And take a little slot machine sound and cigarette smoke with that while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I got something fun for Better Know Framework, so roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? Video.js. What is this? Now, you would think video is done, right? HTML5, you link an MP4 file, and it's done. But if you want to do more with video, like get all sorts of stats while it's playing and do looping and stretching, you know, the playback speed and all that stuff, you need some sort of framework. So Video.js is an open source web video player built from the ground up for an HTML5 world. It supports both HTML5 and Flash. Oh, my goodness. I know, I know. Uh, as well as YouTube and Vimeo through plugins. Oh, yeah, that's the, that's sort of the big players then. Yeah, and it's got a lot of knobs. <laughs> it's good. I get that. Yeah. Oh, so that's, that's it. Good one, man. Yeah, Video.js. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off the show, 1596, which you did about last year, November of 2018, uh -huh. where we talked to one Luke Hoban about a product you may have heard of called Pulumi. That's right. I remember that. I, yeah. At first, I thought it was a, a Middle Eastern cheese. And it, <laughs> I think that's halloumi. Halloumi, okay. yeah. <laughs> Don't set it on fire. That's wrong. Uh, this comment comes from Alex Klaus, who says, it's worth noting that Pulumi is not unique and not the first of its kind. There is a popular open source solution called Terraform, which yep. we've done a show around, which seems at least today to be more popular than Pulumi by the size of the community. Uh, and there's a blog post. This is I'll put a link into this. this is from the Pulumi site. Uh, highlighting differences between the two. The big one being Terraform has its own language and uh, Pulumi gives you choices. Alex goes on to say that very thing, that it gives you a choice of using the language you want, but that only really matters in syntax context because you do have to work with the principles and architecture of Pulumi. Uh, but it's still a young project. It only launched in June of 2018. Admittedly, this is from November of 2018, this comment, and now right. we're a year later. Right. And uh, we'll see how it turns out. I'm like, yeah, I think we will see how it turns out, Alex. Let's, uh, we'll talk to Joe today about how, what's happened in the past year. Right. So thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Musicoba is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Musicoba, 
write a comment on the website at donnerox.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin and he's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet, you know, but uh, no flash. No, <laughs> no flash. Make, make the bad man stop. I don't even know if that's possible. I know it's not possible. Tweets don't support Flash. But don't even think about it. That's How about that? All right, let's uh, bring on Joe Duffy. As um, Richard was referring to Pulumi, Joe is CEO of said company, and it's a Seattle startup making it easier for teams to program the cloud. Prior to founding Pulumi in 2017, Joe held leadership roles at Microsoft in the developer division Operating Systems Group, and Microsoft Research. And he's been on the show the first time uh, in 2006, show 166, talking about concurrency. And then he was on again in 2007, talking about the Task Parallel Library. Wow, man, 12 years. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. Welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. I just want to know... What, what did I say wrong last time that I didn't get invited back for 12 more years? <laughs> <laughs> did, well, you kept working on secret stuff we couldn't really talk to you about. That is true. Hmm. I suppose that's and It's true. the same reason we don't have Dom Box on the show these days. When you're shipping product and you want to talk about it, that makes for a good show. When you're working on these sort of black projects that we're not allowed to talk about, not such a good show. Yeah. <laughs> right. So let's talk about Pulumi uh, just briefly. I'm... We talked about, Richard talked about it just in there and the difference between it and Terraform. But uh, just give us an elevator pitch here. Yeah, happy to. So, you know, I when I was at Microsoft, I was doing a lot with, you know, programming languages and operating systems. And this was before, you know, modern cloud architectures with uh, containers and serverless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I started working more with modern, you know, architecture like Azure and AWS. And given my background, I really expected um, that I would be able to, as a developer, just write code and have a cloud application that was using the latest and greatest of what the cloud has to offer. Right. Uh, and that I would be cooking with gas, you know, in an afternoon. And the, the reality was, was very far from that. Um, and, you know, my background was not infrastructure and operations. And so when I started, you know, looking into, you know, how do we get to where we are, really... The past has been, you know, infrastructure teams and development teams just worked completely independently from each other. They mm-hmm. sort of interface with each other through ticketing systems. And, you know, we were talking about, a, you know, pace of change every quarter, you know, with long planning cycles. And really what I, what I saw was an opportunity to really think of, hey, as developers, we're building distributed applications, right? That, that is what the cloud allows us to do. And so I, I you know, when we started Pulumi, we approached the whole space from that perspective. You know, we're trying to help teams build distributed applications and, and you know, manage them and, and you know, uh, upgrade them. And, you know, all the operational complexity is still there. But really, if you approach it from that perspective, which, frankly, some of the work I had done on, you know, Midori, the operating system, really gave me a different perspective there. Um, and that's why, you know, the difference that Richard mentioned, you know, we, we embraced programming languages. So actually yeah. just... We just launched .NET support, so you can actually just write all your code in C Sharp and end up with a distributed application that uses the best of what you know the cloud has to offer, and that's that's really powerful uh, and really exciting. Yeah, sure is. 
one of the things that Luke really uh, hit me hard on, which I appreciated, which is this idea that, and I've certainly had this experience, that I'm building this configuration as code stuff a lot, but every app I've got, every workflow I've got, the code's bespoke. Like it's it's always unique. The idea of reusing code project to project beyond cut and paste doesn't seem to exist. And mm-hmm. it seems like Pulumi's headed that path that I could build this smart set of scripts that could work across multiple projects and be maintained as its own thing. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for us, the light bulb really went on when we worked with our first actual customer uh, and we went into the account and they basically said, hey, we've got, you know, you know, tens of thousands of lines of YAML and we kind of don't understand how all of it works. Our DevOps architect recently left, um, you know, and then we were trying to wade through it and we basically said, oh, okay, let's take a step back. What are you actually trying to do? And they were kind of like, well, we want a few containers in a database. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, that should not require tens of thousands of lines of YAML. And the crazy part is, you know, you go work with the second customer and the 10th customer and the hundredth customer, and they're all struggling with these same challenges. Um, you know, some friends of mine started a company, you know, Heptio here, they, they coined the phrase, um, walls of YAML and mountains of bash. <laughs> I think that's the state of affairs today. Um, well, pretty oh, yeah. gloomy at least. You're, you're, you're totally right about that. If I never have to edit another YAML file, I'll be a happy man. Oh yeah. I think, uh, I think all of us would be happy. Um, you know, the, honestly, sometimes we get flack for, you know, hating on YAML. It's not that YAML is, is bad. I mean, YAML is great, but what YAML was designed for was, simple configuration tasks. And what what we're using it for now is actually application architecture, right? We're actually putting architectural decisions in our YAML. And that's that's where I draw the line. Um, you know, the, I like to say, you know, the cloud is, it used to be an afterthought. You know, you, you would take your application, you build end tier apps, and then mm. you'd throw them into virtual machines and life was good. And, you, you know, every year you added one more virtual machine. So you start with three and then you have to scale out the next year because you get more load. Right. These days, the cloud is actually part of your application's architecture, and mm-hmm. you know we we think that you, we should approach the problem from that perspective. Yeah, these days it's it's part of the CI/CD pipeline, right? I, I couldn't do the testing the way I want to do it without the cloud because I light up a bunch of instances and distribute the test load so that it goes quickly. Like it's it's embedded into everything. It's it's designed from the cloud and the, and the outset, and. You yeah, know what YAML reminds me of in some respect? It's like, remember v- Visual Source Safe? Like, we got we got to a place where we were doing stuff with it that nobody expected to do. And yeah. oddly enough, it wasn't great at it. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, we've got great tools and great languages. and But I think that where we went wrong with cloud, and it's not even that we went wrong. I think we just we sort of got became boiled frogs slowly over time and didn't realize it where... Um, <laughs> You know, we we basically built two parallel stacks, right? We had the the developer stack and then the infrastructure operations stack, and they were completely disjoint. And what we're finding right. these days, you know, a lot of our customers they they want their development teams to work better with their operations teams. They want they want to be able to be a little bit more flexible about you know who does what and why. Um, and the existing tools, you know, sort of like your analogy, we're we're sort of bending and twisting them and trying to make them do things they were never designed to do. Uh, and so that, that's also maybe a little bit of a contrarian perspective that's different with Pulumi. We really 
saw that, hey, where this, where all of this goes is, you know, developers and infrastructure teams work together um, very collaboratively and agile. It's not, it's not a hard wall between the two sides of the house. Yeah, it's funny. The cloud has come up at the same time that DevOps has really taken a hold. And so we're learning new tools as well as learning new ways to work together and, and sharing skills across, you know, more and more on the run ass side, we're talking to IT folks that are like, I have source code I need to check in in places. How do I do that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was at um, just a couple of weeks ago over in Belgium, there was the 10 year anniversary of the DevOps Days conference, which is ostensibly where that term was coined. Um, and it was interesting to reflect on all the progress we've made and all the progress still left to be made. Um, you know, the original vision of DevOps, it's funny because sometimes you'll see somebody with the title DevOps engineer or, you know, something like that. Mm. The original mm -hmm. vision wasn't that you'd create this new organization. It was that you'd actually have developers and operators working together. And yeah, not a and job, just a thing we do. It's just a movement towards working differently. Exactly. Uh, and we've made a ton of progress. I mean, really, I mean, yeah. This really laid some of the foundation that allowed us to be successful with Pulumi. You know, when we go to operations teams and we say, hey, you can do your infrastructure as code with Python, they're kind of like, yeah, you know, I understand Python. Um, you know, yeah. we just released .NET support. We're actually actively working on PowerShell support. And so for connecting with, you know, the, the Windows IT community, yeah, you can do infrastructure in PowerShell. That's great. But then on the other That's end of the awesome. spectrum, you know, developers, um, you know, they, they don't want to write in YAML or some domain specific language that limits what they can do. They, they already have their editor. They've got their test frameworks. They know, they know how to write code and, and, and leverage, you know, the NuGet ecosystem to right. do, you know, whatever they need to do. Um, and so I was trying to, you know, it's marrying those two sides of the world was, was difficult, but is very powerful. Yeah. And th this is a huge step forward. It, folks want to work in .NET. It makes them happy. So Congratulations, like a heck of a milestone to start incorporating the whole .NET Core. Mm. Yeah, thank you. It's it's funny because when we launched, since we launched, um, it's it's become the number one requested feature. And I think part of it is you know, a lot of the founding team came from Microsoft and, and worked on .NET. And um, I think a lot of people are disappointed that we didn't have .NET support on day one to be honest, right? <laughs> yeah, including you. Did you really have anything to do with .NET Core? I think you're more of the original .NET. Yeah, so I'm, I kind of have an interesting background. So I joined the .NET team right after the 1.0 launch, uh, helped with mm -hmm. generics and link and right. task parallel library, which eventually led to async. And then I kind of went away for a while uh, and went and worked on, you know, uh, this distributed operating system. Ended up back in Windows. And then before I left Microsoft, I was back in DevDiv for, a good three years, I think. Um, and as soon as I got back, actually, Soma, who was running DevDiv at the time, kind of pulled me aside. I think it was within my first week on the on the job. Um, I was managing all the languages groups, you know, so the C Sharp, F Sharp, VB, C++. And Soma kind of looked at me in the eye and said, Joe, all of .NET needs to be open source and it needs to run on Mac and Linux. Can you wow. figure out how to do that? <laughs> wow. Like, uh, sure. I'm not yeah. at, nothing big, out, you know, in your spare time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so that was my number do. one priority. You know, I had other things to do, but, and it was convenient because I just, you know, we had reorged to the Midori project and, you know, half of the team came with me to DevDiv. And so I was able to actually take 
you know, a lot of the great folks on that team and give them sort of a new mission in life, uh, which is to go chase this new project. And so it's always a bummer when you're working on a project and it kind of, you know, Midori never shipped. And so it's really important to me to find something new and exciting for all those amazing people to work on. And this was just that opportunity. So for those who don't remember Midori, tell us about that. Yeah, so Midori was basically a reimagined operating system from the ground up. So mm-hmm. we didn't use Windows, we didn't use Linux. It was literally rebuilt from from nothing. It was all going to be managed code, right? It was all managed codes. So the idea was that we'd focus on safety, so type in, in memory safe, uh, but also concurrency because you know with multi-core and distributed uh, was a big thing, and so we wanted to make sure that you know you had concurrency safety as well. Mm-hmm. And it built on top of, you know, uh, work coming out of MSR with the Singularity Project around mm-hmm. how you could have actually efficient, an efficient operating system built in safe code, which obviously, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom at the time was like, hey, you need to write operating systems in C or C++ mm-hmm. and assembly because you could never get the level of performance otherwise. And unfortunately, that's what leads to still to this day, all of these endless streams of security problems. Uh, and so we said, hey, if we build the whole thing with type and memory safe code and we can get it to perform well, that's just game changing. That's that's basically what the industry needs, you know, for the next 50 years, right? Because every operating system tends to stick around for, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. And so we were really looking at that time horizon. Um, so we learned a ton from it. And we've actually folded a lot of the lessons learned back into the Windows organization, back into .NET. Uh, there are features still to this day shipping in .NET and C Sharp that were inspired by the work we did. Uh, actually, C++, we ended up standardizing new constructs to help with safety in C++. So a lot of good things came out of the project. Uh, we just never kind of shipped it as a new operating system. Obviously complicated well, to do when you're Microsoft and you already have an operating system. And, and a dominant one at that. I, I do like that you call it a project, though, because I look at Oslo the same way that these were experiments in how things could work and maybe they make a product, maybe they don't, but invariably the learning is valuable. 100% agree. I I think when I go back, I would do things differently for sure to maximize sharing the learnings because in hindsight, that was the biggest outcome from the project is, is the learnings that we had, you know, I, I, we should have, we should have published more research papers probably should have open sourced it so people could learn from it and it would have been a lot less secretive but you know this is this is the microsoft of 2007 2008 not mm. the microsoft of 2018 2019 i think these days for sure it would have been open sourced much more like you know you see with the orleans project yeah yeah which ultimately did be kind of become productized too even if you know not necessarily a revenue generator but it's something that people use yeah and that's it's an interesting lesson learned in kind of how how software evolves, right? You don't always know on day one how it's going to be used. And if you do it in a closed source proprietary way, in a secretive way, you really limit your ability to, to leverage those adjacencies or shift the project's focus over time as you really identify, oh, you know, we started the project to do X, but it turns out like Y is actually the thing that that people value and yeah, it requires change and, you know, slightly adjusting things. But if you're closed source, you kind of can't, it's harder to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, without a doubt. And we, I mean, we did a show about Orleans when it was still just an MSR project for supporting Halo. Uh, and we were just exploring actors in the .NET world. And then of course, now it's a full bore open source project 
Of course, we've also talked about ACA.net and the sort of other actor approaches that are available to you. Yeah, and the Orleans project actually, you know, we we had actually one of the folks from Midori had gone over to the Orleans project, and that was something that we were always, you know, keeping an eye on and talking to those folks. And but like I said, they got it right by open sourcing and, and doing that early. Yeah, but you know, and I think it's interesting that one of your folks went over there. It's like these sort of incubator type projects is something like Midori that educated so many people in so many different ways. Like I got to think there's a ton of teams in Microsoft that all benefited from that, even though it might be hard to point to it. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And honestly, that was the best part, you know, even though, you know, the Midori team, I think at its height was over, it was over a hundred people. And, you know, I wow. took probably 50 folks with me over to DevDiv when I went back. Um, that was it was an exciting time trying to organize reorgs across, you know, three major divisions, you know, from MSR to Windows to DevDiv. But um, once that was done, it was great because, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that I'd say out of those 50 folks, you know, a good 40, 40 something are still there, still doing great work uh, on the C++ compiler, C++ language, the C Sharp, uh, .NET, the JIT compiler, the runtime. And so... That, that was really good. And because of that, all those people remember the lessons learned and are able to really spread the word and say, you know, hey, when we were facing this problem in Midori, you know, for high performance asynchronous streaming, you know, this is what we did and this is the results that we had. And so mm. that, that's really nice to see that still, you know, multiple years later happening. But now you're a CEO, like, have you ruined your job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot how to code. So I just... I just push pencils and, and stare at spreadsheets all day long now. <laughs> just, just sign stuff all day long. You got lawyers around you. That's right. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but, I've always wanted to start a company. Honestly, I, before going to Microsoft, I, I toyed with doing a startup. I actually started a consulting company when I was in high school to try to, quote, get companies to the internet. This is back in the mid-90s when that was a thing, uh, just to date myself even further. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I always enjoyed the business side of things as much as the technology. And it's really hard at a big company to be able to do both. Um, and so I, I knew eventually I was going to do a startup and I just had too much fun, you know, working on .NET and Midori and um, kind of felt, you know, towards the end, I felt, you know, I was still learning a lot and, you know, I'd never managed a team of that size before. And um, more I stayed at towards the end as a sense of loyalty and purpose for the for the folks that were on the Midori team, wanted to make sure that they landed in a great place for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that was done and .NET Core was on a good path, I was kind of like, hey, now's the perfect time. I'm going to take a bit of a risk. I'm going to jump and I'm going to you know start something of my own. And it's been a heck of a ride, but it's it's wonderful. Well, I do think your timing's great. Like the cloud is becoming this big thing and we have this problem, right? YAML's kind of gotten out of control and and uh, this is going to be an impediment to progress. Yeah, I, I think honestly, it's funny because when we launched, you know, it feels like a long time ago, but it was really a little over a year and a half. Um, actually, not even a year and a half, a little over a year. And uh, I think the weeks leading up to that, I just saw all this, dissatisfaction on Twitter with YAML, just YAML this and YAML's, t- you know, and, and so I think we timed it really well. I think honestly, if we had launched even uh, a year earlier, uh, two years earlier, for sure, I think it would have been a little bit too, too much ahead of its time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the, you know, the idea of 
empowering developers to do more infrastructure and to work better with their their operations teams. Uh, these days, over the last year, that's really where we've been seeing a lot of success with and. And I think that's that's the thing going forward that's really going to be fueling a lot of the the innovation and in, in, in the dev, the developer tool space. So who's writing Pulumi code then? Is it IT folks or is it dev? Yeah, it's the magic of of Pulumi. It's both. Um, so you know, we just launched um, some playbooks and and libraries and tools around Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is a good example where you know the way the way I think of it is in most organizations there's an API between the dev team and the operations team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to choose what that API is, right? The API historically has been a ticketing system. When you need something, you file a ticket. And obviously the latency for that API is quite slow, right? Because <laughs> you file a ticket and you wait you know, weeks to get your virtual machine provisioned. Uh, at some point, people started creating you know, UIs for that, for that, that interface between mm-hmm. the teams. So you know, developer needs a VM that can go point and click and, and spin up a VM. And so with Pulumi, it really, that API becomes code. So the infrastructure team, you know, let's take Kubernetes as an an example. The infrastructure team needs to spin up Kubernetes clusters, manage them, configure them, scale them across, you know, different regions, different geographies. And so they can use Pulumi to do that. Uh, And they're writing in whatever language they're familiar with. So Python, you know, um, JavaScript, Go, C Sharp. Um, you know, obviously for operations teams, a lot of them opt for things like Python. Uh, but then on the other side, you know, developers that need to create container-based applications, maybe they need a database or they need a container or a serverless function. And so now they can just write code too in their language. And now the two are working together and it's kind of powerful because it's one unified way of delivering software rather than having, you know, one side using completely different tools and practices than the other. Right. And so it's actually good for, for like CIO who wants to make sure that, you know, there isn't chaos in how their teams are, are working. Uh, so it really worked great for both sides. And you have, um, obviously you work with all the clouds. I mean, that's a lot. Is there, are there any holes in it or there, is there stuff that you're still trying to, um, uh, to snuggle up to? Yeah, it's been challenging to cover all that surface area. I think we have three dozen different providers now covering, you know, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, mm. Kubernetes, but then also things like, you know, Datadog, New Relic, GitLab integrations. Right. Because um, it turns out infrastructure spans not just the clouds, but also these new SaaS platforms uh, right. as well. And Staying up to date with the latest and greatest is is tough, but we're partners and we're, we're actually working with Microsoft, um, Google, and Amazon on on ways to automate some of that support um, because they publish API specs, right? Uh, Swagger open API specs. And so by leveraging those and working with them, we're, we're able to do increasingly more autogen for the APIs that they ship so that when they ship a new API, that same day we can have support for it. Yeah, I was just thinking that's got to be the bane of your existence is this constant changing of APIs. And adding new yeah. when new products and services come onto the into the for, into the fray. Yeah, it's it's I think we've been clever about how we can stay on top of those things. And so we tend not to fall too far behind. Um it's but it's it's definitely a struggle. I actually kind of an analogy I use is, you know. Think of uh, the relationship between .NET and Windows, 
you know, when mm-hmm. Windows ships a new, you know, native API, do you have that capability in .NET? You know, um, if, if there's some new, you know, file system capability, mm. does system.io have that capability or does it not? And, right. and the answer used to be, we'd actually, you know, back in .NET classic, if you will, um, we'd actually take Win32 features and kind of expose them directly. In .NET Core, you can't really do that because .NET Core has to run on multiple platforms. And so unless every platform has that feature, it's, it's difficult to expose. And, but, you know, and for those reasons, you're able to actually program at a higher level of, of abstraction sometimes in Pulumi that helps to, to basically program at a more logical level that makes sense for a developer rather than the low level bits and bytes of, right. you know, say programming to win 32 directly. So that your own scripts aren't resonating to API changes either. Correct. Yes. And so, you know, that, that doesn't always work. We're definitely, you know, we don't want to be a lowest common denominator, but we, we enable you to program at that level if it makes sense for you. Like, Mm-hmm. maybe you're the kind of person that just wants a Kubernetes cluster and you want it configured the standard way, or you just want to run, you know, an, a serverless function every night at midnight, that's going to do some archiving or something. And, and you don't really care that on Azure, you express that completely different than, than in AWS with CloudWatch alarms and all these things, right? Maybe you just as a developer want to say, Hey, every night at midnight, please run this function. Uh, and that's a much nicer programming experience because it's less complicated, you know, less complex, um, and it insulates you in case you want to move to a different cloud. And uh, guys, hold that thought right here while we pause for this very important message. Well, my first online Blazor workshop was a huge success, and the next one is scheduled for Monday, November twenty fifth. In one day, we'll build a server side Blazor PWA app complete with Blazor components, EF Core, API controllers, SignalR, ASP.NET Core identity, JavaScript interop, and user management using the free Visual Studio 2019 Community Edition and .NET Core 3. And hey, if you can't make the workshop, you can buy the video and take the course on your own time as if you were right there. Go to blazor.appvnext.com to sign up or purchase the video. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Joe Duffy. And we're talking about Pulumi and code, uh, infrastructure as code. And once you get into the world of code, now you are open to all of the, the, the things that we can react to, you know, with, with um, triggers and webhooks and all of these things uh, do you do you see customers utilizing the these types of event handlers for um infrastructure deployment does that make any sense are are, are people doing more th- with it than you thought they would yeah definitely um i think 
having, so that if you look at sort of the maturity life cycle of most people doing cloud infrastructure, they start by going into the console and pointing and clicking to create things, right? Um, if you point and click, you say, hey, give me, you know, give me a container, give me this thing, give me a database. Mm -hmm. And then you quickly realize, oh no, if I need to create, you know, a new environment, I have to go like manually point and click again. And that's not easy to automate. And so, so Pulumi gives you this, um, and infrastructure is code generally, not specific to Pulumi, but gives you a way to fully automate all of that. And once it's automated, you can kind of automate the automation, if you will, um, right. with, with webhooks. And so we see people doing all sorts of things from, you know, a lot of people doing Git-based deployments. And so, you know, embedded in their GitHub uh, workflow with, you know, pull requests. And we have actually support for GitHub Actions. And so, you know, if you want to trigger a deployment that way, you can. If you want to, you know, trigger it in Slack, you know, we have a bunch of folks who do, you know, Slack-based deployments. And so you can go into a channel and say, you know, hey, forward, spl forward slash, you know, deploy now. Uh, we actually use that ourselves for for deploying. Actually, we use a combination of those two. Um, but we see other people, you know, automating tests, right? So maybe every time sure. you do a deployment, you want to fire a webhook and then go test the service to make sure it still works. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's super powerful to be able to automate the automation. Speaking of testing, can I write test code against my Pulumi scripts now? Like, does that make sense? Or is it? Absolutely. Know? Yes, yeah. you can. I actually, I hosted a track at QCon. There was a talk on testing and I asked the audience, you know, how many people in the audience test your application code? And thankfully, uh, over, you know, 95% of the audience raised their hands. Mm. Some um, of them may have been lying, but at least they know they should. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> but then I asked the question, you know, how many of you test your infrastructure code? I, you know, maybe 2% or something like that of the well, audience. Well, because the normal way to test it is to run the script and did it make the correct infrastructure? But that's not testing, that's operating. Right, but now that you've got infrastructure as code as real code, you can use your favorite test frameworks. You can use Roslyn analyzers to check your configuration to make sure it's not, you know, making obvious mistakes. Most people today... Uh, for infrastructure, even infrastructure as code products, the ones that don't use real code, they don't find out, you know, that they had a syntax error until, you know, five minutes into a deployment when, right. whoops, I just, you know, hosed production because I had a comma in the wrong place. Or if it's YAML, God forbid, I, you know, I, I put a, uh, put an extra space somewhere, right? Because it's white space sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. And, but even further, you know, we allow you to actually test not just the, the basics uh, to make sure your code compiles and does the right thing from a unit test perspective, but also integration tests to make sure that when you combine different infrastructure modules and you do a deployment, you actually get what you expect. And that's that's really, honestly, I will say that's far more powerful and more popular amongst our, our users than I ever imagined it would be at the start. I think this is a, this is a big trend that we're going to see, you know, over the next few years. Because certainly you could test the a deploy into a test environment to see if it worked. But when it doesn't work, you're just going through it line by line trying to figure out what went wrong. Like I think the thing about good testing is actually points to the areas that are problematic without you having to decode it. Yeah, and especially, you know, we talk to customers where they've got hundreds of microservices and each one, you know, maybe it works fine in isolation, but then you add them together and there's some weird combination that that causes things to break. And the, pro right. the problem that I see is a lot of people, and this, this gets to, you know, earlier we were talking kind of 
the current tools, it's like kind of like square peg round hole where we're trying to make them work. So, you know, we can't, we can't really do the testing we want. So what do we do? We, we mock the environment. So we create a fake right. environment on our desktop that mm-hmm. we think approximates the real environment, but it turns out that's never going to work as well as just actually deploying the thing to a real, you know, cloud account. Uh, and so we, we make that really easy to basically, we have a thing called a stack and a stack is basically just an instance of your project and you can create any number of stacks. You can have dev stack per developer. You can have, you know, staging, you can have production East coast, production West coast, um, all over, you know, you can create any number of these things and, and you can even spin them up. You know, we have ephemeral stacks. And so in a pull request, you can spin up a whole copy of your infrastructure, test it, and then tear it down as part of the pull request validation. Um, and that's, that's just fundamentally game changing when you can do that. And now I get back to, I think this sort of the regular question I always started talking about this idea of building a set of scripts that work across many apps so that you, you don't have to cut, you know, when, when a new security rule comes down, you don't have to go into every app scripts and modify them. I mean, is this really achievable now? Can I have a set of abstract classes that apply common rules across my projects? Yes, absolutely. We, we actually have our, because because it's just languages, we you know use packages, use familiar constructs like classes and functions and package managers, and so we actually offer a number of best practices. We have the, this thing called Crosswalk, which is a collection of libraries and best practices we have for you know AWS and Kubernetes and and, and so on, um, for you know common patterns that we see recurring from one customer to another. But you can create your own. Uh, it turns out you know we work with a lot of consultants where. You imagine a cloud consultant, right? Your job is to go in and help customers be successful in standing up infrastructure and cloud applications. And, and you see the same patterns all over the place. But the tools, you know, the current state of the art, you basically copy and paste scripts between, you know, every, yes. every account and there's no real reuse. And the problem is when you go fix a, fix a security flaw, you know, maybe you realize, oh no, I just, I basically replicated the same security problem across, you know, hundred clients. What do you do? Uh, yeah. You have to go one and cut and paste at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One at a time, you go back to them and manually copy and paste the fix, right? Um, whereas using package managers, you can actually say, "Hey, you know, clients version one point thirteen is out and it contains a, a critical security fix. Please upgrade." Um, is you, and then they go upgrade. They do a Plumi deployment, and it says, "Hey, you know, we're going to you know change this config for you," and then you're done. It's it's the same way we we do software with applications, right? And so we like to say, basically, we're, we're bringing all of that software engineering uh, discipline that we've developed and learned and grown to love from the application domain to infrastructure as well. Mm-hmm. And we are solving essentially the same problem now and with the same mistakes being made. Yeah, and it, honestly, for, for a curmudgeon like me who's been around for long enough to see these patterns recurring and you know, just in a different slightly different context it's really painful to see you know us recreating and repeating the same mistakes and so we basically said hey we can you know kind of stand on the shoulders of giants if you will and just leverage all yeah. of those those lessons learned rather than having to go through for the next 10 years the same set of mistakes and and lessons learned yep yeah, but and by the same token it's like you could only do this now it was only when we got to this level of pain that people start looking for alternatives and are interested in in a more sophisticated way. Because this does take more thinking to actually build out your deployment tools as packages and have them independently maintainable. Because you know, now I got to think about what are my class groupings look like? What's going to resonate with change? 
Totally. And I, you know, honestly, we often see this sort of pendulum swinging, right? Where we go from one, one thing and we swing to the other extreme. And so I actually, I think, you know, there's still a place for, you know, not, you know, some folks aren't comfortable with a full programming language and, and, you know, I, I think a subset of Python is still declarative enough that it feels like, uh, you know, familiar configuration language, but I'm not, I'm not going to stand here and make judgment or be elitist about, you know, people should use programming languages. I do, I do think mm-hmm. it solves a set of real problems. And so for people that, that have those problems, I think it's, it's worth them considering, but you know, if YAML's mm-hmm. working fine or configuration language is working fine, that that's okay too. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're just evolving and I think you're absolutely right. The level of complexity that we're facing now is really what's, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back in a sense. Right. And so we add complexity in language to simplify the overall maintenance and operations problems. Like complexity is always going to be somewhere. You just need to know where it is. Yeah, exactly. And the complexity is still there. You know, infrastructure is not easy. Um, you know, I, I think it will get easier over time. And obviously, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google are, are working hard to make it, you know, as simple as it can be. And so as it gets simpler, things just get better. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. complexity. There definitely is complexity. I mean, setting up a network is complex. And that's that's why for me, you know, infrastructure and operations is is a super important discipline, right? Those folks understand how to build secure, reliable networks and and manage security policies and scale things in a cost-effective way. And so this is not about kind of replacing ops as a function. I hate the phrase no ops. I think, um, yeah. but I think it just helps teams work better together and share and reuse, you know, best practices. Smarter ops. Smart ops. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. The scenario I was thinking is the easy way was embedding the uh, credentials directly in the code. It's just dumb to do, right? The more complex thing was to properly tokenize it to a key vault with a you know separate set of references. And that's harder, but ultimately a superior, more scalable way. The fact that the code that invokes that is now in a class, so you don't have to remember how to do it each time. You just call the class and say, go get my credentials and apply them like this. That's just the next level of thinking. Yeah, and security is also important. I mean, we haven't talked about that yet. That was one of the other frustrating things for me when I came to the space is, you know, I go through the Docker getting started tutorial or the Kubernetes getting started. And then basically at the end, it would say, P.S., please don't do this in production because it's (laughs) insecure. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'd look into, oh, oh, wow. Okay, I didn't mean to do something insecure, but this tutorial just like basically baked in something insecure because it had a hard-coded environment variable that had a secret or something. And then I go and like, okay, well, I want to do the secure thing. How do I do that? Well, okay, that's a whole different story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And ask the MongoDB folks whose default deployment had all security turned off and Mm. turned into a major exploit. Yeah. And so for us, that's a, for for me, I'm sort of a a little religious about that on the team. It's like, hey, every code sample should be secure by default. And if that, mm-hmm. if that makes the code sample too complex, let's fix the system so that the secure thing is not complex. Right. <laughs> let's Interesting. Not, let's not yeah. change the sample to do the insecure thing. Let's fix the system so it's easy to do the secure thing. Right. And I think that's a different way of approaching things, but really important. No, and I appreciate that philosophy. If you have to put at the end of any sample, don't do this in production, don't publish that sample. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, and now you get to the essence of it, which is, 
security does make things more complicated. We need to make better security tools. Absolutely. I, and I think we've come a long, a long way. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of great products out there. It's still, it's still done as a sort of afterthought integration in most, in most cases. And so for Plumi, we, we tried to make that as easy to do just by default as part of your developer inner loop. Um, but we still get a ways to go, uh, on making things secure by default. Uh, I would be remiss if I did we talk a little bit about PowerShell because it hit me that PowerShell was a great description of that. You can use this very simply. You can use this very complexly too. Where is PowerShell in the story arc now? Yeah, so we we just launched .NET and Preview. Uh, and mm-hmm. basically, we, we wanted to start getting feedback from people on the shape of the APIs and, you know, some certain aspects of things like, you know, async uh, or complex and we think we have a good solution, but we want to make sure it works for everybody. Um, so that's where we started. And so, you know, any .NET core language works, you know, C-sharp, F-sharp, VB. Um, we haven't done an example in Fortran yet, but that's on the list. Uh, hey, that should have been top of your list, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't, I actually can't wait to see, you know, a modern Kubernetes application written in Fortran. And that's going to yep. be amazing. Yeah, um, IBM still maintaining a version of Fortran.net and Fujitsu still maintaining a version of COBOL.net. Aha. Uh-huh. COBOL might even be better. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, PowerShell, we've definitely had folks ask about it. And, and in fact, it's, I think, the same day that we, we launched the .NET core preview, somebody had done an adapter to, to be able to use it in PowerShell. Hmm, nice. Um, so that's on the, basically, by the time we get to GA for .NET, which is, going to be early, you know, Q1 uh, next year, um, we'll have PowerShell support. We definitely have a lot of folks in the PowerShell community that are, are looking forward to that. I'm hoping to get some some friends at, you know, Microsoft that are still working on PowerShell to to help with some of the API design challenges we have there. But it's actually not not a ton of work now that we have the .NET Core Foundation laid. This, the .NET implementation, is it for Azure only? Could I be writing at .NET code that would go to AWS? Yeah, we you get access to you know the three dozen or so providers I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. You get access to all of those. So you do AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. Um, you can even do vSphere VMs on prem if you want. Uh, so we we basically have in Pulumi, you know, a lot of us came up through .NET, and so we kind of know how to do multi language runtimes, and so we architected the system to to be multi language at its core. The the heart of the system is actually written in Go. But it can, but it can load any language as a plugin, basically, and and then any of these core providers we have, we have a way of code generating APIs across all the languages we support. So it's actually pretty easy. Once we have a new language, we just write the code generator once, and we get the support across all of our packages. Yeah, and, and I just was looking at the sample there and saying, oh, you led me straight to the Azure CLI. So I was concerned it's it's kind of Azure centric, but. And I think a lot of .NET Core people would be, but certainly there's .NET Core people that are running VMs elsewhere too. Yeah, and we uh, actually, the Azure t- a number of people on the Azure team approached us after seeing some of the Pulumi samples. Um, prior to this, our, our, you know, and still to this day, our primary language is TypeScript. Most people are using TypeScript, which is also a dot, mm-hmm. you know, a, a Microsoft-friendly language. And we, we usually uh, demo everything in VS Code. And so it's always been very... Very nice uh, to have, you know, Azure plus VS Code plus TypeScript, but now you can have .NET in the picture. And so we've, we've actually been working with folks on the Azure team to, to solve some of the challenges they see with their customers. Um, 
one one for example is Cosmos DB. Uh, it yeah. turns out one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges they have is you know you spin up a Cosmos DB database and it scales automatically around the globe, which is amazing. But how do you scale your application alongside your database? And it turns out a lot of customers struggle. They accidentally scale their database, but then they deploy their application to one region and now they're, they're suffering latency challenges. Um, and so we've worked with them to come up with these reasonable patterns where your application, no matter how you've written it, automatically scales with the database. Uh, and so you'll see a lot of compelling Azure examples just because we've been trying to help Azure customers out. Yeah, I'm wondering if you aren't going to end it with a huge template library and you know that makes this easy for everybody. Yeah, honestly, I I wish we we had uh, a lot more people to work on things like this because I, I think that's where it starts to get really magical. Um, where you know instead of starting from the building blocks, the low level building blocks, and and trying to figure out how to stitch them together yourself to to create some compelling architectural pattern. Actually, having repositories of those because it is just code, I think, is a huge opportunity. So as we go forward, we're we're start we're kind of building those out organically as we go, and so you know I think over time we'll have a patterns and practices you know library of of all these things across multiple clouds. Pulumi's in GitHub, right? Like you you could get contributions of people building these different pieces. Absolutely, it's all it's all open source, and and we we see frequently. Um, end users blogging about things and publishing their own packages. You don't even need to put it in the Pulumi organization. You know, you can you can just because it's it's all code. You can publish it to npm or NuGet or whatever your language of choice is. And so we we see a lot of that happening. Um, a lot of people creating you know reference architectures and and so I think at some point we can curate a set of recommended you know best practices and and we'll have a lot of material to choose from. Yeah, just the idea that I would have a template for each of the different services I use and that I just pull in via NuGet. You know, okay, well, here's all my bits. Now let's, you know, tweak a few values and add a couple of credentials and ta-da, deployment. Exactly. And, you know, you get back to what I was saying, our first customer. It's like, hey, all I was trying to do is a few containers in a database. Hmm. (laughs) Really, if you look at modern, you know, cloud architectures, there's not a huge amount of variation between what what people are doing. I mean, one of the great things is there's so many services. You can do AI, ML, you can do serverless, you can do different kinds of databases. But right. you know, a lot of people are just doing a static website or a microservice or you know, dot dot dot. There's a lot of a small number of very popular patterns, and codifying those would be incredibly powerful. Not there yet, but you could see it. I also see you as a facilitator for multi-cloud, right? That in theory, I should just be able to switch between the deploy to AWS, deploy to Azure, deploy to GCP, and it works. Yes. I say, uh, sometimes I refer to it as many cloud. um, And the only reason is uh, there are some tools out there that basically try to hide the differences between the different cloud providers. Um, Mm -hmm. They basically give you a lowest common denominator interface that basically removes a lot of the capabilities of the underlying cloud. And right. we're, tr- we're trying not to do that because um, that that would mean, for example, if you're using Cosmos DB, you might not be able to use the latest and greatest features because Google Cloud and Azure might not have those. Right. But so, so at that level, you're still benefiting because you're getting a consistent way of, you know, 
coding, provisioning, managing your infrastructure, you know, one workflow that's common to all these things. A lot of customers we talk to dealing with multi-clouds have completely different stacks for each of the clouds they're going to. Um, but, but then once you have that foundation, you can start building lowest common denominator abstractions that make sense for your scenario. And we have some that we provide, but, you know, we have some customers where they only care about running, you know, virtual machine on-prem and a virtual machine in Azure. And they want to be right. able to consistently enforce that there's some architecture between those and they don't want to completely diverge. And so they can create their own abstraction, you know, Acme Corp virtual machine, right? And, um, or even higher level, Acme Corp application. And that might be comprised of, you know, a few virtual machines. And then, and then they can kind of decide what abstraction level makes sense. But we definitely see a lot of, you know, people having to deal with multiple clouds for a variety of reasons, um, either intentionally or, you know, we were working with one company recently that got acquired and, you know, now the parent company was using a different cloud and they're now that, so now they're multi-cloud. They, they didn't plan to be, but now they are. Yeah. No, and, and you're right. And the, and the risk and cost of trying to consolidate is too high for now anyway. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you don't need to, and it's working for you, you know, why, why bother? It's, it's, yeah. you know, and, and furthermore, each of the clouds is, is good, you know, it's interesting for us because I often view us as an interface for our customers into all the different clouds. And so we get yeah. to see all of the differences between them, you know, design differences, technology choices, cultural differences between the customer bases, honestly. And, and you know, not all, you know, the different clouds are good at different things. And so sometimes right. it makes sense to keep a workload on cloud A instead of moving it to cloud B. Yeah, I was thinking you got a really interesting view looking across these customers of as what the relationship with the different clouds are like, and and I'm still of the opinion that I question the merits of multi-cloud. You know, the hybrid model of on-prem and a cloud provider makes a lot of sense, but any given cloud provider of the big three is going to be pretty darn good. It's hard to say reliability is the reason I need two. Yeah, and this is kind of why I. Sometimes I try to avoid the multi-cloud phrase just because it triggers these these feelings uh, a lot uh, in people, and I, I I definitely see some people doing multi-cloud for misguided reasons, and you know some sometimes it's uh it's driven by fear and paranoia, like you know, well, what if what if Amazon you know does something that we we don't agree with, or, uh, or if it goes or, down, oh, what's that? Or if it goes down. You know, what are the chances right. that two clouds are going to be In reality is, you know, all the clouds are, you know, yeah, they, they make mistakes occasionally, but they, you know, for the most part, they've learned from those mistakes. And, and man, the reliability, it, like you, you're better off architecting your application to be multi-region and availability zone um, than going between multiple clouds just to solve that problem. Yeah. But, but there's good reasons for it. You know, um, like if you're selling software as a service, and that software needs to run in your customer's account. If you only build that software to run on AWS, you've limited your target customer base. Now you can't sell your software to anybody running on Azure. Um, and so SaaS companies often need to be multi-cloud because they want to broaden the customer base they can sell into. Um, there's some mergers and acquisitions, as I mentioned before, that often lead to multi-cloud. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, and you know, honestly, if you're, if you're big enough, I definitely have seen that large companies can get, can put pricing pressure on the, the cloud by, 
basically showing that, hey, you know, if we really wanted to, we could go rewrite and move from Azure to, you know, Google Cloud, right? Uh, I do see some companies actually do save money by doing that. You, uh, what's next for you, Joe? You, you mentioned off, uh, off mic that you're going to be at a conference in Vegas. Yeah. So, you know, this is conference season for us. And so we're, you know, we're doing KubeCon in San Diego. We're doing um, lots of little conferences, you know, DevOps days. We're going to be at AWS reInvent uh, in Vegas. Um, next year, we're definitely going to be at, you know, Microsoft Connect. We're going to be at um, Google Cloud Build. We're, we're really ramping up, you know, we've been pretty quiet up until this point and we're seeing a lot more success. And so we're going to start scaling that a lot more next year. So we're probably going to do, you know, two dozen conferences, something like that. So that's great. Um, well, my guys in AppVNX love Pulumi. They use it all the time. And uh, that's, that's, by, that's the first time I heard of it was from them. So cool. Very good. Thank you, Joe. This has uh, been a great hour, chock full of nutritional value. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, guys. It's been great to be here. And uh, I guess I'll talk to you in uh, what uh, what's 12 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when? That's a long time. Oh, yeah, talk to you in 2031. Right. <laughs> 2031. Oh, my. Oh. Oh, I'll talk to you then. Well, if, if you'll still, still talk here. to us, we'll still talk to you, right? So <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joe. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.